Thank you very much for your singing this morning, Gordon, for praying and leading us. Both unique blessings to me this morning, and I'm sure to the rest of you. Take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 12. Is there anybody uh, that uh, needs a Bible this morning? If so, uh, feel free to raise your hand. Our ushers have Bibles, and they're ready to hand them out. And a moment's notice there, so feel free to slip your hand up. This morning, I would like to discuss the demands of discipleship. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning, the demands of discipleship. It is better for one man to die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. Do you remember those words? Those words were from Caiaphas, the high priest, back in John chapter 11, who uttered those words to the rest of the Sanhedrin, giving Jesus effectively a death sentence. The Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle John since then has been taking us to different groups in his gospel since then and how they've responded to this statement. We've had curious Passover attenders wondering if Jesus would actually show himself in the temple after this death sentence. Remember that? Then you remember Pastor Kent preached on Mary, lavishly worshiping Jesus, anointing his feet with the expensive perfumed oil. And of course, beside her we have Judas, don't we? That poisonous, pious man, coveting, covetous in his true nature, protesting Mary's extreme, expensive worship habits. And then after that, Pastor Tim preached the crowds, waving palm branches and shouting, save now, save now. And yet they were far too interested for Jesus to save their nation, but not their own souls. And now in John chapter 12, we are introduced to another group of people But unlike the curious Jew attending the Passover or Mary in her extravagant worship or even Judas or even the crowd screaming, save now, these are a group of people that were outsiders by all accounts from the Jewish perspective. So in John chapter 12, verse 20, in walk the Greeks. So uncertain of their standing with Jesus that they do not even go directly to him, whether it's because Jesus was in the temple and they weren't allowed inside the temple, or whether they just weren't sure how Jesus would receive him, it is clear they do not feel that they can approach Jesus without an introduction first, because Gentiles were so disdained by the Jew. So disdained. And so we see that the hostility was indeed graphic but unwarranted. The hostility was graphic because the Jews considered Gentiles like dogs. I actually have that in Scripture. Unworthy of redemption, God's redemption. It's unwarranted because God made it abundantly clear, starting with Abraham back in Genesis 12. Remember that? That in Abraham, all, all, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Throughout the Old Testament prophets, this was clear. Minor prophets, major prophets alike. Remember Jonah? 
Jonah is a pretty big example of Jewish hostility towards a people group unlike their own. Jonah says, God, I'm not going to Nineveh. But what does God do? He sends a giant fish to deal with that stubborn, hard heart. And God sends Jonah to Nineveh, doesn't he? And what happens? The city gets saved. And what does Jonah do? He goes by a tree and pouts about it. So this is all necessary to remind us that the arrival of the Greeks does something unique here in John's gospel because really up until this point we haven't had much to say about Gentiles. It triggers the events that will now unfold in rapid succession here in John's gospel. It demands of Jesus Isaiah 52 we're not going to turn there this morning, but you can think about it. It demands of Jesus, Isaiah 53, that Jesus, the suffering servant, though he's the king, must suffer first. It demands it. And so we see here this morning the personal demands of a Christ follower. And in this passage, we see several Demands, But let's read the passage first, just to acquaint ourselves with it. John chapter 12, verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began asking him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. And Philip and Andrew went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to the life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You see, we see the personal demands of a Christ follower here, and first we see that these personal demands of discipleship are designed by God. They're designed by God. By God's design, God draws people like the Greeks to himself. This is outside of what the Jews want. This is outside of what they even perhaps expect because of their poor ecclesiology, because of their poor theology. We have a group of people not yet focused on in Jesus' ministry, and that's the Greeks. And it's remarkable that, that the Jews don't get it. It's remarkable that even, in a sense, the disciple that Philip has to talk with Andrew about it because John has been very clear about Jesus' ministry, not just to the Jew, but to all of the world in his gospel. He's been foreshadowing it as long as the prologue in John chapter 1. Go there with me. Let's just look at a few of these ideas. Keep your finger in John chapter 12. Turn to John chapter 1. 
Go to verse 9. This is, this is hidden in plain sight that Jesus is interested in the Gentiles. Verse 9, there was the true light, John says, Jesus, which coming into the, what? The world. Enlightens every man. Go to verse 29. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him, and what does he scream? Behold the Lamb of God. Not just for the Jew. Not just for those who were coming now to the temple to celebrate the Passover, as Pastor Mark even brought up in the Lord's Supper devotion this morning. But the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the, the world. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the John 4, 42, look with me there. And they were saying to the Samaritan woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one indeed is the Savior of the world. The Samaritans were like a peg closer to the Jew, but not very close. They were a peg better than the Gentiles to the Jews. Yet we see Jesus bringing salvation to them and them recognizing he's the savior of the world. In John 8, go there with me, verse 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, you see this here, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, the disciples were maybe perhaps even confused because Jesus gave them instructions, didn't he? You think about the instructions he gave his disciples as they were, as he commissioned them the first time to go out and have ministry on their own. Do you recall some of his advice? Well, he gives some peculiar advice, but advice that now is, is really being born out into the fullness in God's plan. But he gives this advice in Matthew chapter 10. You don't have to turn there. But he says, Do not go in the way of the Gentile. Remember when Jesus says that? Don't go in the way of the Gentile, nor do not enter the city of the Samaritans. Remember, Jesus, the, 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 the Jews had these two groups pegged. You were either a Jew, which was okay. You were a Samaritan, eh. or you were the rest. Don't go there, don't go there, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was Jesus' first mission. That was his first priority, to be the suffering servant and the anointed king for Israel. And yet they reject him formally. The high priest declares, it is better for that man to what? Remember? To die so that we can have our nation. And so since Jesus is rejected, Greeks now come to him in God's fullness of plan. And Jesus makes this startling statement a few verses into our passage, and he says, because up until this point, the hour has not come, right? The hour has not come, right? They want to make him king in John chapter 5. John cha the hour has not come. But suddenly, here, now, what? Jesus says, the hour has come. The hour has come. And how countercultural it would be for Jews to accept Gentiles and treat them as equals. These Greeks came to worship, but they weren't even permitted into the temple. 
The segregation of worship from Gentiles illustrates how systemic this problem was. Think about this for a second. The temple was off limits to a non-Jew. You remember that? Remember when Jesus throws out the money changers in John chapter 2? That was in the outer court of the temple where the Gentiles could come, but that was not within the temple. It was on the outer court. They weren't allowed to even enter. We've been mentioning a lot, Pastor Tim, Pastor Kent, Pastor Mike, uh, Jewish historian Josephus. He's one of the premier historians uh, closer to the, the time of Jesus. And Josephus reports that between the court of the Gentiles and the inner sanctuary, there was a partition. He says this, there was a partition, a dividing wall made of stone all around, and the height was about three cubits. It's about four or five feet. So it was clearly delineated. The outer wall, the outer court, where anyone could go to participate, but not within. Not within. Jesus, Josephus also records for us that there was a warning inscription as you were to approach this barrier four to five feet tall of a stone wall. And it read this. Remember these words. And take your finger and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll get focused here in a second, but take your scriptures to Ephesians chapter 2. Josephus says that the wall had this inscription on it. No alien may enter within the barrier dividing wall around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall he put blame for the death which will ensue. It'd be like having armed guards outside the auditorium this morning. Thankfully, we live in a culture where we don't need that. But it would be like having armed guards and saying, if you don't have the right blood, you cannot come in and worship. And if you try, you'll be shot to death upon entry. That is how separate and how hostile the Jews were. Take your Bibles and go to Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 21 with me. Excuse me. Verse 11 with me. We'll start there. Therefore remember, and he's talking to Gentiles here, that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. So he has something to say about circumcision. There's not much there. It's just a human thing. Verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers... Or, what did Josephus say? Aliens to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But then he says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, have been brought near 
by the blood of Christ. And he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, broken down the barrier of the dividing wall. Literally, the wall that, that, was, be, that was between the outer court and the inner court is now torn down by Jesus Christ. And you and me have hope to come to him by his blood. That is now, my friends, what is the turning point here in John's gospel. That is how profound it is. And Paul unpacks this truth further in further detail. Verse 16, that we might be reconciled both in one body to God through the cross. So, yeah, this is exciting. This is amazing. Jesus himself is the one who brings now the ability for all those outside of him to the Father, including the Gentiles. And so this is by God's design that he draws the Greeks to himself. It's one of the demands of discipleship is, is having your culture and, and your race and your, and your ethnicity and all that you know just kind of crumble at the supreme sovereign declaration that God is interested in more than just you. He's interested in the world, and he's interested in the world so much that he's willing to give his son Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so by God's design, God uses people for himself like Philip and Andrew. Look at what our passage says in verse 21. As we unpack God using people for himself, we have to ask the question, why does John provide us so much detail here? Small passage, but tremendous amount of detail, right? It's not just people that come. It's Greeks that come to Jesus, right? And they just don't, they don't just come to the twelve. They go to Philip. And Philip is not just mentioned, but his hometown of Bethsaida is mentioned, of Galilee. And we're told then that Philip got Andrew, and they both took the Greeks to Jesus. That is a lot of detail. And, you know, I'm scratching my head as I'm saying, what is the detail for? What is the detail for? And we don't want to read into the detail, but we don't want to leave the detail behind either. And we see here that God is God has had, he has a design in discipleship, my friends. And it is detailed to the T. And maybe you and I, we can't always figure that detail out, but you can be assured this morning that God is the God of the details. And he has a design. And he's using your life and your particular, your particular background to bring him glory, to make you the disciple that you ought to be. But there's also demands on who you are. And so maybe Philip was put in an uncomfortable situation. I don't know, but Philip was a Jew, but he had a Greek name, just like Andrew. They both had Greek names, but these men were Jews. And the men in our passage that come to Philip are described as Greeks. It's not the same word as in Acts chapter 6 where we had Jewish-speaking Greeks. Excuse me. We had Greek-speaking Jews and Hebrew or Jewish-speaking Jews. That's not the same word. These, these are Greeks by ethnicity. These are Greeks by, by race. They're not Jewish-speaking Greeks. But what were they doing? They were Greeks that were what? We have detail about what they were doing. They were going up to what? They are going up to worship. So these were, these were Greeks stuck in the outer court, not able to come in, but they were very much interested in the ethical qualities 
of, of the monotheism of the Jewish God. They were attracted to the God of the universe. One man says they were attracted to the lofty morality and monotheism of Judaism, but did not care to fully embrace Judaism by circumcision. And so, look what happens here. We have the Greeks, we have Philip, we have Andrew, we have Bethsaida. God used a name. Philip, a Greek name to begin to bridge the gap between these Greeks and Jesus. Isn't that an amazing thought? That nothing is outside of God's plan and God's purpose, even a name. God uses Philip's background, his upbringing, his parents' choice of a name to further his great design and discipleship. How personal is our God? How profoundly sovereign he orchestrates things, even down to the naming of a person. So there's a rich theology here of providence that underpins the story of a disciple's life because God designs discipleship and he uses Philip and his name to do it. And secondly, look at God's design for discipleship and using Philip from Bethsaida of Galilee. Bethsaida was near the region known as the, the Deca, uh, the, uh, it's Decapolis, but it's Deaca, Dea, <laughs> I can't say it now, De, uh, whatever, Deacopolis. I knew I would do this because it's Deca and Polis. Um, and once you can't say it in front of people there, you can't say it. Uh, this was a city region in the Roman Empire that was heavily influenced by Greeks and Greek-speaking culture, but also included Jews from uh, all around the, the movement of the diaspora of the Jews out from Jerusalem and settling away. We even see here Jesus going into the regions and healing in this region. He went out and he, he, he healed a deaf man and, and spoke, Mark tells us, within this region, this 10-city region outside of the Jewish population, but very much inner, intermixing between Greeks and Jews there. And in fact, Bethsaida is very close to this region of 10 cities, and in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this about Bethsaida. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, Jesus had done some remarkable things in this region where Philip is from. God uses a name. God uses a city where Philip is from to spread the fame of Jesus' name. And this possibly, we're not certain, but John gives us so much detail, just seems to bubble to the surface that this seems to be the connection between 
those Greeks that approach Philip and Philip, that, that they're most likely from this, this region of ten cities, Diakopolis, and, and, and that Bethsaida being next to this region and Philip being from Bethsaida is, is a nice connection for them to come to Jesus. And so God uses parents and names Backgrounds and places, circumstances and upbringings, tragedies and successes, triumphs and failures. He uses it all. He uses it all. Do you believe that this morning? He does. He is sovereign. and He can. In this context, we are going to see he even uses death. In fact, that is really the prerequisite for discipleship that bubbles to the surface in this passage, holding loosely to one's life. So we see God's design through Philip, through Bethsaida, and we also see that God's design brings about his glory. Look at verse 23. Jesus introduces this concept now because it's tied to the Greeks seeking Jesus. Remember, this is what turns Jesus to now declare that this is the hour. And the hour is, is a euphemism for his what? For his death on the cross. This is the hour. And what Jesus teaches next is that it's not despite of his death that he'll be glorified. Not despite of his death, but because of his death, he will be glorified. In other words, folks, because the Jews have rejected their king, their savior, Jesus must die to be glorified. And what does that do? That fulfills Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 and all the scriptures pointing to the fact that the the Messiah, the promised one to come, not only will be exalted, but he will also suffer because of our sin, necessity to bring those who are outside near to have peace with God by his blood. Jesus, the cross, was not a piece of decorative jewelry. But it was the most horrific, violent death despised by the Romans and reserved for the vilest of criminals. It was the very instrument that broke his body and caused his blood to be pierced. The Lamb of God who takes away what? sins of the world. And so when Jesus says further on in our chapter here in verse 12, it's chapter 12 in, in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says in verse 32, and then in verse 34, that the Son of Man, he must be lifted up. You see that there? He must be lifted up. It is clear to his hearers that he's talking about lifting up on the death to the, to, to, to the cross. But to John, it's equally clear that the work of the cross is lifting him up in exaltation, in the beginning of his glorification, to be obedient to the Father, to, to, do, to accomplish the mission at hand, to be the Lamb for the world that takes away the sins of all of us who will trust in him. What better way to illustrate the incredible design of God in discipleship than to take the serpent's plan to bruise Jesus' heel, to take the tragedy of the cross and make it a triumph 
There's a great design for the follower of Christ. So we've seen that. But now we're going to turn to the personal demands of discipleship that come at a cost. We've seen the, the demands by God's design. Some of you might not might like your name, but God's got a purpose for it. He might not like, you might not like your background, but God's got a purpose for it. And now we're going to see that all of us who call Jesus disciples have a calling to expend great cost in following him. And so Jesus gives us the picture of the, of the cost here, doesn't he? In verse 24, he says, there's a grain of wheat, and it's got to die so that it can bear much fruit. Perhaps it's because most of us do not live on a farm. I know there's a few folks in here that do. Some of you just said, praise the Lord, you don't live on a farm. You realize how hard it is. But we're not really in an agricultural society here. We're thankful that our farming comes with plastic bag bags and already washed vegetables because, y you, you know, uh, the vegetables had those insects on them before they were picked, right? It's not like they magically don't have them. Uh, so my girls were kind of concerned about the, the insects on our garden vegetables until I kind of just rolled down that piece of information to them. But when we think of seeds, we don't think of death, do we? When we think of seeds, we think of life, growth. That's right. But Jesus here, and, and Jesus isn't necessarily talking in the, in the scientific way. I didn't even bother to get into the science of whether a, a, a seed really dies or what that's called or dormancy or whatever it is. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is abundantly clear. You know, it's the time of year that, uh, for many of us who have gardens, we're reminded of this truth a little bit. You know, we have some beans and tomatoes and, and peas and stuff like that. We try, my brother-in-law says, uh, farming in the burbs, and that's definitely us. We're just farming in the burbs. Uh, but, you know, inevitably, when you have a good crop of beans like we did, you're going to miss some beans along the way. And as beans get, beans get overly ripe, do you know what, what happens to them? They start to, some of you have no, no idea. You're like, I have no idea. All right, they, they turn from green to brown. And along the way, now no one really wants to eat a brown bean, Right? We, we all have that sensibility. But along the way, between green and brown, there's this, there's this, there's this thing that starts to happen to the beans. And, and if they become overly ripe, it is about as satisfying, the whole thing is about as satisfying as chewing on a stick. Have you ever had an overly ripe green bean? Yeah, lots of times, because, <laughs> because we do too. When we find them, we try to get them on our plate. We mix them in with the good ones, so hopefully nobody notices. Right, chew on this stick while the rest of them aren't. You know, doesn't work real well. But there's a, there's a tremendous point there that Jesus is getting at. Is, is the plant must die for the seeds to be ready to sprout. In fact, we have peas, and, and uh, peas are an early uh, cool season, and, um, and so they die in the summertime when it gets hot, and 
And uh, we have a bunch of weeds where our peas were. And the other day, I was actually clearing the, the weeds. And, and lo and behold, there were some peas that must have fell and died. And, and, and among those weeds now, there's some peas getting ready for the fall. That is just what happens. And so, seeds do require death in this sense to bring about more life. And Jesus gives a picture of that necessary reality of his death, but also of those who are truly his disciples. In other words, the following of Jesus costs something to his followers. And that is what Jesus is articulating. If you're going to follow me, you're going to be just like me, a seed that must die before it can be fruitful. And so there's the principle of the personal cost. Jesus expands from the cost to him to the cost of those who are following him. See that? In verse 25, he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it. Are we willing to hold loosely to our life? Are we willing to hold loosely to the things that God has given? And so there's this demand of a servant that we see in verse 26. You can think Philippians chapter 2, how Christ modeled his servant nature, being willing to humble himself unto the cross. And so that's the demand here in verse 26 of following Christ, not only of being a servant, but of following him, John says. He must follow me, Jesus says. And then, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, my servant will what? Will be also. And so it's completely appropriate for us to understand that where Jesus goes, we're going to go too. And so we may not be mocked and spit at and hung up on a cross, but our life... Oh, if you're a disciple of Jesus, your life has to be held as loosely as Jesus held his life. For all the comfort... And this is hard in our American sensibilities, isn't it? But this is the profound truth that Jesus wants us to understand. Jesus didn't go to palaces and sit with kings. He was in a manger, and he was a poor carpenter's stepson. He was mocked. He was misunderstood. He was ignored. He was spit at. He was dismissed. He was reviled. He was tortured. Disciple, why would you have any different of a life if you're going to follow him? To illustrate this, I, there's so many illustrations. Because of our spoiled nature, and we can be thanking God that we are spoiled people. But there was a man, Lawrence Chatterton. Anybody, anybody know who he was? No, probably not. 
He was one of the translators of the King James Bible. He translated Psalms and some other books in the Old Testament. And he came from a well-to-do but staunchly Roman Catholic family. And it came as a great shock to his parents when they learned that Lawrence had become a Puritan at Cambridge. And in response, his father wrote him this note and sent it to him. Can you imagine getting this from your father? Maybe some of you have. Dear Lawrence, if you will renounce the new sect which you have joined, you may expect all the happiness which the care of an indulgent father can secure you. Otherwise, I enclose in this letter a shilling to buy a wallet with. Go and beg for your living. Farewell. Well, Lawrence made the choice to follow Jesus. Some of you have had to have, make that same choice. So we see that there's a tremendous cost, don't we, to following Jesus. I trust you've seen the magnificence of the personal, personal nature of discipleship. We even see here that outside of the cost, that there is a slight, there's, John just sticks in a little bit of hope. We're going to bear great cost like Jesus now, or we ought to, or we ought to be ready to. But then what does he say? If anyone serves me, what? The Father will honor him. We're following in Jesus' steps, and Jesus is honored on the cross, his glorification. The humiliation ends and the glorification begins all on the cross for Jesus. And so, if anyone serves Jesus, the Father will honor. That's a promise you can take to the bank. Of the, of the universe. And so there's a demand of discipleship, and, it's, and those are designed by God. The demands of discipleship come at a cost, and the demands of discipleship have an eternal reward. It's this kind of discipleship that Jesus speaks of and requires. It's this kind of discipleship that separates the true Christ follower, like Mary, who spends a year's salary to worship lavishly her Savior and King. And it's this kind of discipleship that cuts through the crowd's emotion that just merely is caught up with Jesus' power and not yet being willing to accept Jesus as their Savior from their sins. At the heart of true discipleship is a heart that is willing to trust the purposes of God, no matter the cost. No matter the cost. Looking toward the reward to come. So our Father, this morning, we pray that you would help us as we sit back as disciples and, and confess that we need to understand that we may not have all the designs and we may not have all the the purposes and the background, but you have a great plan and you're working it for our discipleship. You're working it so that we can be disciples of Jesus. And some of us have horrific backgrounds, but you've used those backgrounds for your glory. And, you, and you've even promised to use those backgrounds so that we can encourage others to come to Jesus, that he is enough. 
Father, it would be a complete miss this morning if we did not walk away from here understanding that Jesus, that following Jesus demands a great personal cost from us. And so we ought to be ready, like Lawrence Chatterton, to say, I'm going to follow Jesus no matter the cost, even if it costs me my own father. In fact, Jesus even intimates so, so much in his Gospels, in the Gospels. And, oh, Father, this cost, however, comes with a great reward that if we are going to serve Jesus as true disciples, you have promised that you will honor us and bless us for all eternity. So, Lord, we pray that you'd give us the strength to bear up underneath these demands. And for some of us who, who look at these demands and say, oh, they're too much, but I want Jesus, help, help them to understand that, that dying to their own ambitions and their own self is the very fundamental reality of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. Convict some in this room who want Jesus and want all that the world has to offer too. Convict them of this sin. Convict them that they truly do not have Jesus and that they need to repent of all that the world has to offer and to solely put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us who, who have done that, it certainly is a good reminder for us that there is a cost and that we need to be careful to guard our hearts against covetousness and against comfort but that we ought to be prepared no matter the cost. Wisely so, appropriately so, but no matter the cost to follow you, even if it, especially if it means dying to self, which you call for here. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.